0: I have a question for you this morning as we start our time together. How many of you in this room pride yourself on how good of a driver you are? You don't have to raise your hands, just the sideways glances from those around you who know you best have already given away your identity, right? You may, maybe you don't view yourself or maybe you do view yourself as the best driver in the entire world. You may not be a professional race car driver, but you certainly would dominate the minivan racing circuit. (laughs) I mean, you can make your Kia Sedona take off at a stop sign faster than any other minivan in the greater Lafayette area. In fact, you're so into your driving skills, you struggle to let anyone else drive while you're in the car. You would rather walk wherever you're going. Or just not go at all, as opposed to riding while someone else is driving. And on the rare occasion someone else drives, you find yourself nervously gripping onto any handle you can find in the car while mashing the imaginary brake pedal into the passenger seat floorboard. Maybe while someone else is driving, you are tempted to blurt out the obvious things that you need, that they need to see while they drive you around. At first, you start subtly. Oh, wow, that light sure is changing quickly. Or, whoa, those brake lights jammed on, sure, in a hurry, better slow down. Then it progresses just into noises. (sighs) Ooh, Right? None of you struggle with that, right? It's just me, right? A couple of years ago, God gave me the opportunity to have to learn to humbly trust both His plan and the people He put in my life to help me during a period of time. Went through an exterior, extended period of time with several different infections on the bottom of my foot. Not just any foot, my right foot, my driving foot. Which meant I had to be the passenger in many different cars for extended periods of time. And as many times as I sat there like a driver's ed teacher with a student driving for the first time, my wife was still willing to drive me around. Now, There were a few lessons God was teaching me in regards to my arrogant, independent way of thinking, such as, no matter how much I wanted to be, I was not ultimately in charge anyways. I had to learn that I had no choice but to take on the passenger role. And I had to learn that in the end, I need to trust God's plans and those he put in my life to help carry those plans out. This week we are reaching the end of our study of the book of 1 Peter. And don't worry, we'll pick up with 2 Peter in a few weeks. But we've been navigating our way through our study this year called Hope for Everyday Life. And today we're going to turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 6 through 14. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me there? 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 6 through 14. That's page 182 of the back section of the Bible located under the chair in front of you. Our study today is called The Hope of Humbly Trusting God in Suffering. I want to read this passage for you. We're going to start in verse 5. We ended with this passage two weeks ago when we preached on this, but I want to start in verse 5 because I think it gives us a running start into these verses that we're going to study today. Let's start in verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, Because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanius our faithful brother, for I so regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. Let's spend our time today looking for three ways to strengthen your hope in God in the middle of your suffering. The first one is this. Humbly trust in the God of hope. Humbly trust in the God of hope. Look, look at these, this part of the verses here, starting in verse 5. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that He might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. I hope that you remember all that we've studied so far in the book of 1 Peter. The entire book of 1 Peter has been centered around the idea that the readers are in the midst of suffering. They were aliens in a strange land. They were looked down upon because of their refusal to buy into the religious customs of their neighbors. They were looked down on because they had different beliefs. And in the middle of all their suffering, they were challenged to think about their trials in a few different ways. They were to find ways to endure because of the example that Christ had set for them in His own suffering. They were to find their hope in the salvation that was offered to them because of Christ's suffering. And they were to seek to be a blessing to those around them, even though they were going through suffering, even if it meant being a blessing to those that were causing suffering their suffering. They were to keep their focus on eternal things. They were to remember that they were going to be tested to see the sincerity of their faith. And they were even told that that testing was going to start with the household of God. And as a result of that, as we talked about two weeks ago, they should look to their leaders of their church to lead them through that suffering that was coming to them. Why? Because God called pastors to lead the church even in suffering. And God called pastors to lead like a shepherd. So at the end of our time last week, we looked at verse five, which reminded us of this. So all the leaders are supposed to lead. There's a certain way they're supposed to lead. And we're supposed to do what? We're supposed to humbly submit to the leadership, the godly leadership that God has placed in front of us. So how do we humble ourselves? Let's think about this. Humble yourself. It says this, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What is the opposite of humbling yourself? It's pride. What does pride ultimately say about your relationship with God? Pride is giving yourself the credit for something that God has accomplished. I'm pretty amazing, when really it's God who's done that for you. Pride is taking the glory that belongs to God alone and keeping it back for yourself. It's holding on to that glory that's due to God. Pride is self-worship. Anything that we accomplish in this world would not have been possible if it were not for God enabling and sustaining us. At the end of the day, your pride ultimately is you claiming to possess more power than the very one whom you're refusing to humble yourself to. Think about that for a second. My pride says, I, with my limited knowledge, strength, and ability, believes that I am greater than you. Have you ever had a time in your life when you've had pride and your pride resulted in you thinking you were better than someone individually and then as a result you got humbled when it was revealed that you actually weren't? I'll share with this with you. When I went off to school for my freshman year of college, I just left a pretty successful high school basketball career. In fact, I was pretty convinced in my mind that in the state of Illinois, it went Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Johnny Kajir, all right? Like that's, that's pretty much where I was. I thought I was on the top level of basketball talent. So I went off to Bible college. I had all the headbands on. I had those fancy Specs glasses, you know what I'm talking about? I had those. I had the right knee braces. I had all of the baggy shorts that a basketball superstar would ever need. I arrived to college a little bit early for soccer preseason practices, and on a Saturday while I was there, there were no other students around, and so I just went to the gym because I was bored and I was shooting baskets. I, I had never played in a game of basketball before that point that I was not sure that I wouldn't win. I was always confident. I'm going to win. It won't. I'll win. I'll challenge anybody. Well, as I shot on one end of the court, I noticed that this little five-foot, nine-inch guy was shooting hoops on the other side of the court. So I thought to myself, oh, this will be fun. I'll challenge him to a game of one-on-one. There's no better way to dominate here on the basketball court than to just dominate right away from the beginning. So I went over and I challenged him to a game of one-on-one basketball. And he asked me a couple of questions like this. Are you good at basketball? Are you going to be trying out for the basketball team? Are you sure you want to play me in basketball. And I answered him in the most arrogant way that any eighteen year old would answer some short little wannabe basketball player with shooting hoops on the other end of the courts. The problem is this. I didn't realize this little dude was an all American point guard that had just graduated from college. I didn't realize he held the school record for three pointers made, and I didn't realize that he was going to take zero mercy on this way too cocky freshman. He then proceeded to beat me before I even had the chance to realize that we were playing. And then he did this. He picked up his basketball. He looked at me and said, well, I've got better things to do, and walked out of the gym. (laughs) Now, our pride often puts us in uncomfortable positions that exposes our weakness. Are we ever too proud in the middle of our suffering? Yeah, we are. And do we ever get exposed in our pride in the middle of our suffering? Yes, we do. So these folks are going through suffering, and it is decided they needed to be reminded of the fact you need to humble yourself. Notice what this passage says about where we are supposed to humble ourselves. Under the mighty hand of God. What is the mighty hand? hand of god the mighty hand of god is referring to his sovereign power at work god is working and directing and guiding even in the midst of our suffering friends during your suffering regardless of your prideful beliefs and your own abilities to handle yourself there is no safer or better place to be than under the mighty hand of god I hope you're keenly aware of your own inability to navigate the suffering of this world on your own. I I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon that's talking about our need for humility. He said this, I do not believe that God ever fills a cup that was not empty or that he ever fills a man's mouth with his word while that man has his mouth full of his own words. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. What happens when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. The passage says that He exalts you. God's purpose for your humility under His mighty hand is so that He can exalt you. What does pride ultimately do? It destroys you. Eventually your pride will fail you. Eventually the end of all sin is destruction. But humility is exalted in the end. And those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God will be exalted by the very one whom they have humbled themselves. So what is this exalting? You know, even in considering this phrase that God will exalt us, our pride tends to show up here, right? If we're we're not careful here, we can begin to think this way. If I'm humble enough for long enough, then eventually God will lift me up on some sort of winner's platform of humility, and there I'll stand with great pride, rejoicing in the recognition of my own humility. But this exalting is different than that. This exalting is when God lifts us up out of the sufferings that we've been enduring in His divinely appointed time. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so He can pull you up out of the suffering in His time. Another way that we humble ourselves is by casting your cares on Him. The verse says, casting all your anxiety on Him. This phrase, casting your cares on Him, is a supporting participle in this particular passage. In other words, one of the expressions of humility is that You cast your cares on him. So one of the ways you show your humility is by casting your cares on him. Now, the word cares here or anxieties could be used to describe a whole lot of different things. It could be your anxieties. It could be your discontentments. It could be your discouragement. It could be your despair. It could be your questioning. It could be your pain. It could be your suffering. But one of the expressions of pride says this. It says, I can handle this myself. I can do it. I can face my anxieties in my own strength and I can make it. I can overcome the discontentment in my life and eventually get what I want out of life. Uh, I can overcome my discouragement by masking it with overachieving or some form of hiding from reality. I'm able to endure my despair. I will figure out the best way for me to live. I will take care of my own pain. I can endure this suffering. What is the problem with that prideful way of thinking? Your pride will never be able to sufficiently provide the peace you want in the midst of your suffering. Your pride will never provide the peace you want in the midst of your suffering. If you carry your own anxieties and you try to fight them in your own pride, eventually they will crush you. So what do you do when you humble yourself to God? You take Him all your cares. You take Him all your anxieties. You cast them on Him because you trust Him. And when you cast them on Him, you're demonstrating that you trust in the care of God. Why? Because He cares for you. In the end, your pride will rob you of the sweetest care that God wants to provide for you. I love the word picture that's brought to my mind when I consider this thought of humbly submitting under the mighty hand of God. What amazes me the most about this thought is that it is his mighty hand of God that will ultimately provide you with the care that you need. This reminds me of my favorite passage of Scripture. I want to share it with you. Look at Isaiah 40, uh, verses 10 and 11. It says this. Behold, the Lord God will come with might." With his arm ruling for him, and behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, and his army will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. I want you to think about the imagery of this verse. It's the idea of this mighty hand of God, right? Uh, On one hand, God has this all-powerful, mighty arm. I mean, the muscles are rippling, the veins are popping, the shirt is tearing under the might and the power that is represented there. He's powerful. He's strong. He's powerful. And yet, in the other arm, He is still gently comforting and caring for that scared little lamb. Uh, On one hand, He's destroying those who rise up against Him and with the other. He's comforting those who are suffering. Friend, when you and your pride tries to face your suffering on your own, then your own pride robs you from the sweetest care that God wants to provide for you. So, humble yourself. Secondly, resist the attacks of the devil. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be of sober spirits, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world." We all probably recognize this passage of Scripture, but I want you to think about the imagery that's being given to here about who our adversary, the devil, is. What is he like? He's like a lion that is stalking its prey. The description of the devil in this passage is of this lion that's sneaking around, waiting for the perfect opportunity to attack. How does that play out? You ever watch National Geographic? You ever see this play out? Here's how it plays out The lion spots its prey eating in the tall grasses. The lion sneaks in as close as it possibly can get to the prey, just waiting for the perfect opportunity to attack. It stays low, it stays camouflaged, it's patient, it slowly creeps forward, waiting creeps forward more, waiting and waiting, and then it strikes. This is the description given to us about the attacks of the devil. What, what is this verse seeking to tell us? It's seeking to give us a warning. Hey, even in the middle of your suffering, there's still an adversary that is stalking you. There's still an adversary that is trying to get close enough to attack you. So how should you go about being prepared for that attack? We're told to be of a sober spirit. Be of a sober spirit. In the simplest form of the word, what is the opposite of sober? Well, the opposite of sober is to be impaired or to be drunk. In other words, it's to not be in a state to be able to think clearly. If you knew you were in a situation where you may be attacked at any moment in time, you would not want to be in a state of impairment that would prohibit you from reacting in an appropriate way. This is a metaphor that is served, to serve as a reminder that we need to be careful to not be so consumed with the intoxicating pleasures of the world that we're unable to recognize the attacks of the roaring lion, the devil that is seeking to destroy you. Let me show you a few verses that tell us how to be sober. Romans 12:1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What is that verse telling us? It's telling us that if you are a believer, there is a way of life that ought to be changing about you. You ought to be be, being changed to be more and more like Christ and to be less and less like the world. Yet many times, what do we struggle with? We struggle with this idea because we become enamored with the things of the world. We like the things of the world. We like to keep the things of the world around us. And so instead of being um, transformed, instead of changing to be like Christ, we're willing to stay in a place where we're still being conformed to the thoughts of the world. There's a problem with that. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. So what happens? Friends, don't get so intoxicated on the pleasures of this world that you're unable to react to the attacks of the devil. You must be sober-minded. But you also must be alert. We're told, be on the alert. What is the opposite of being alert? It's to be asleep. Have you ever been in a position where you are so tired, but you need to be on watch for something, but then you fell asleep and the thing that you were watching for happened and you failed to see it happen or to stop it from happening? You ever have that happen before in your life? Okay. Have you ever been camping? Have you ever had a group of raccoons that really want to eat all of your camping food? Have you ever had that experience before in your life? When I was fresh out of college, I went camping with some of my friends and We were having a lovely time hanging around the campfire. We'd gone fishing all day and we were eating the the success of our fishing time. And so we were hanging around there and then we took the leftovers and we had put them on the picnic table and we were sitting around the bonfire enjoying our time and uh, we were just laughing and having a great time. And all of a sudden we heard a little bit of noise and we turned over and this like entire group of raccoons had descended upon our leftovers and carried them away into the woods. So we were like, well, that's not a good thing. Like Those raccoons weren't even scared to get close to us at all, right? They saw what we did to the fish, but they apparently weren't afraid of us. And so there we are. So we decided it was time to pack up all the food items and we would go to bed, right? So we gathered all the food items up and we packed it away and we decided it was time to go to bed. So we all went in our tent and we zipped our tent up and we laid down to go sleep. And I can still hear the words of my friends saying this statement, He said, I went ahead and brought all the bread into the tent so that we'll be safe as we sleep. Now, I was in the place where I knew that was not a great decision. But I also was too tired to do anything about it. So we fell asleep to the sound of raccoons circling our tent. At some point in the middle of the night, we heard a tearing noise as one of those raccoons ripped through the side of the tent and took that bag of bread and ran off with the bag of bread. Now, what happened? We weren't very alert, were we? A very bad place to be when you're being stalked by a roaring lion is to be asleep and to not be alert. Friends, I'm afraid that many who profess Christ are not aware that there's an enemy that is seeking to destroy you. And so in their contentment, they don't even recognize the potential threat that is right there. We're too tired from pursuing our own pleasures and our own satisfactions that we don't even notice that there is a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. So what do we need to do? We need to be alert. How do we be sober? How do we be alert? By standing firm in your faith. Stand firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. How do you resist the attacks of the devil? How do we do this? We be sober, we be alert, but how do we resist the attacks? Well, Peter's already given us some ideas on this. Look at 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does this verse tell us about being prepared for the attacks of the devil? You need to have your mind prepared for those attacks by being reminded of the strength of the hope that is found in Christ. So here's how this plays out. You're aware of the danger of the lurking lion that is seeking to devour you. You know that it's present. You know that the devil is there wanting to destroy you. But instead of cowering in fear and looking around every corner, instead, you're prepared by having your mind being prepared for the potential attacks. Notice this verse says that you're fixing your hope completely on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, are you preparing your minds by learning from the Word of God in a way that will enable you to stand strong when the attacks do come? You know, when lions attack large animals, they don't rely as much on their ability to sneak up on them. In fact, when they come into a herd of large animals, they will come in as a group, and they will circle the group, and then their goal is to cause so much chaos that it will naturally divide out the weakest and the slowest and the easiest of prey. Similarly, the devil loves to attack those who are beaten down through their suffering. And in the midst of your suffering, be prepared for the attacks that are sure to come due to your weakened state. So how are you preparing your mind for those attacks? Are you regularly studying God's Word? Are you regularly digging deep into the truth of God's Word? If the only source for your spiritual strengthening is found on Sunday mornings and that's it, you're not going to be prepared enough for those attacks. How else do you prepare for those attacks or to resist the devil? Well, look at 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Okay, so how do I be ready to resist the devil Well, first, I I fill my mind with the thoughts of the hope that I have in Christ, but then secondly, I fill my mind with the thoughts of prayer. I'm praying for help in the midst of the attack. You're sober-minded when you pray. A sober-minded person demonstrates his humility by being a prayerful person who's humbly aware of the attacks that are coming. Christian, it is impossible to live a sober-minded and alert life if you are not actively praying for God's mighty hand to protect you. Christian, let me say this to you. Wake up. Be ready. Because the devil is lurking, waiting for the perfect time to attack. One last thing I want you to notice about this verse is the key phrase at the end of this. It says "As Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren Who are in the world. In the midst of your suffering, it's possible for you to feel like you are the only one who is suffering. You ever feel like that? Why am I the only person going through this right now? All around the world, there are other people who are going through suffering and they are needing to resist the devil and to stand firm in their faith. So remember that. You're not alone. There's others who are going through this too. So pray for them and pray for God to strengthen you in the midst of your suffering. The third way that we find hope here is by enduring suffering with eternity in focus. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says this, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever amen what does it mean that you will suffer for a little while my idea of a little while is like eight minutes max <laughs> right i mean i could handle eight minutes of suffering pretty well is there hope if the suffering is short right it says after a little while is there hope hey, it's going to be a short suffering period It seems, though, that the suffering seems to go a whole lot longer than eight minutes. What if I were to tell you that your perspective on a little while might be off? In fact, do you see the end of a little while in this verse? Look at this. It says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory... Okay, so what is the end of the little while? What is it? It's his eternal glory. So according to this verse, the end of the little while is the beginning of his eternal glory. What this phrase seems to be saying is that your little while is all of your days on earth. Now you might say, Pastor Johnny, if you want me to believe that, I need a little bit more proof of this. So I'm really glad that you asked me for that. Here it is. Look at First Peter 1. Six and seven. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the end of the little while throughout the book of First Peter? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is us seeing the glory of God. It is us being with Christ. And according to this verse, for a little while you'll be distressed by various trials, which allows you to prove your faith. And it ends when you see Christ. So how long is a little while? It's your lifespan. That may seem like a long time to be expected to potentially endure suffering you might be thinking i just want a little bit of peace with no suffering right now pastor johnny where's the encouragement in this train of thought that says my suffering for a little while means however long i'm going to be alive But first peter 1 24 through 25 helps put it in perspective for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Compared to the rest of eternity, the sufferings of this life are very short. What percentage of eternity is 82 years? It's nothing. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And I realize that today you may be sitting here thinking that you don't want to endure suffering that will go on and on and on for all of your life. But you will not be ready to endure suffering here on earth if you're not ultimately looking ahead to eternity. Keep your mind focused on the eternal picture of life with Christ. Your life with Christ starts at the point of your salvation and it lasts for eternity so you can endure this momentary suffering of this life because for eternity you will be with your Savior in perfect peace. By the way, what happens at the end of this suffering? We're told that God will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After your suffering, the glory of God will come, and what God will do, and here's what God will do for those who have been suffering. He'll perfect you. In other words, God will renew you. You've suffered much, so you need to be made whole again. He will confirm you. God will stabilize you after this period of suffering. He will strengthen you after your suffering so that you can worship Him for all eternity and He will establish you for a life of eternal praise to the glory of God. In the end, when God perfects, confirms, strengthens, and establishes you, it will cause you to rejoice that you humbled yourself under the mighty hand of God. Which leads us to this last bit. Rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Our verse says this, To Him be dominion forever and ever. Friends, have you considered how the mighty hand of God sovereignly allows you to face suffering? He allows you to face suffering so that in the end He can exalt you. 1 Peter 4.11 says this, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. His dominion is the source of hope to face the suffering. Friends, listen. God is strong enough to pull off what He has promised here. So trust Him in the midst of your suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the reminders of the ways that we need to humble ourselves and trust God in the midst of our suffering. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to, um, to be ready to humble ourselves before you and to be ready to resist the attacks of the devil that come against us. And Lord, help us to keep our focus on eternity. Lord, help us to endure suffering for a little while that we may be with you for all eternity. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.